0: There's a lot of misconceptions about Christianity and this thing called salvation. One of my friends, let's call him Chris, Chris thought, I get in good with God depending on how good I am. And so for him, getting right or getting in good with God came down to really doing, doing rules, doing enough good deeds Uh, he grew up in basically an Indian Catholic church and he thought God saves me if I do enough good. And frankly, he was a legalist and he acknowledged as much. And at 5 a.m. as a teenager, he would be on his knees, literally, reading and memorizing the Bible. And as a teenager, memorized all of Psalm 119 because he thought, as he articulated to me, he was trying to earn salvation. And so Chris was a slave to self-righteousness. Consider another real person. Let's call him James. On a scale of morality, James was on the opposite end of Chris. This guy was immoral. Even non-Christians found this guy immoral. He came from a family of criminals. His brother is currently spending life in prison. James himself began his jail career, his criminal career at age 13. And at one point in time, I was talking to him about Jesus and how Christ came to die on the cross to save sinners like us. And, you know, when you're evangelizing, you can tell whose wheels are turning and his wheels were turning. And as he considered, he said with a certain degree of sadness and regret that you could see on his face, God doesn't save bad people like me. Just like Chris, James was a slave to self-righteousness. From the outside, they look so different, right? But in their hearts, they're exactly the same. They trust in their own righteousness. Chris said, God saves me if I do enough good. James says, God won't save me because I've done so much bad. They thought that God's salvation depends on how good they are. But in this morning's passage, Jesus says something completely different held out to us from Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. We see that salvation is a free gift of God to those who humbly call on his name. Salvation is a free gift of God to those who humbly call on his name. I invite you to turn with me to Luke 18, and we, again, are in verses 9 to 14. As you turn there, let me just explain that this story is often called the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And uh, if you're exploring Christianity or you're just new to uh, parables, for example, Jesus would go on and tell these stories or parables that had a main point, a big idea. And he told them in order to clear up confusion that the hearers had. These parables are meant to help listeners. They're meant to help readers or sift listeners and readers and help us see the way, see things the way that God sees them. And again, in today's passage, in today's parable, Jesus clarifies for everybody, for us today, that salvation is a free gift of God to those who humbly call on his name. Let's go ahead and stand as we read Luke eighteen nine to 14. Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. He, speaking of Jesus, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Please be seated. Again, main idea today, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Uh, You know, writing things down helps us. Uh, memorize or keep it in our heads better helps us learn and understand and grasp the material. so i encourage everybody to write notes here's the main idea salvation is a free gift of god to those who humbly call on his name i'll repeat it one more time it's probably the fifth time already actually salvation is a free gift of god to those who humbly call on on his name. Just to let you know, normally, right, I have an outline for you guys to write down, you know, points one, two, three. Today, I have no outline. We're just going to walk through the story and apply it as we go along. In our passage today, Jesus wakes us up to the dangers of self righteousness. In fact, Jesus speaks directly to, there it says in verse 9, look there, He speaks to people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt, or they're they're looking down upon others, looking down with contempt upon others. Now, of course, if you're visiting with us, you don't need to know anything about Judaism or Pharisees or Christianity to see self-righteousness at work, right? What it looks like to trust in ourselves that we are righteous and so have contempt over others. It It exists everywhere that is self-righteousness, whether amongst the religious or whether amongst the secular. So among the religious, just think, okay, self-righteous, the self-righteous, they follow some sort of guideline, some sort of law, in order, they think, to gain some sort of standing with God. Now, this is not at all what the Bible teaches In fact, as the main point asserts that we're looking at today, salvation, again, is a free gift. It is by God's grace that salvation is granted. The very definition of grace is that it is a gift that doesn't and cannot be repaid. But nevertheless, many have the misconception that right standing with God is somehow gained or somehow earned through following laws. The more you follow, the more standing you get. The less you follow, the less standing you have with God. That's the religious. Now, in the secularists, you also see self-righteousness. To be a, secu- to be a secularist, let me just explain, is to have, uh, you know, one might claim no spiritual basis for their life, for their living, for the way they think, for their morals, but, but in reality, everybody follows some sort of law. Take cancel culture, for example. In order to cancel others, whether for their political views or views on sexuality, their views on morality, you have to have some sort of law, some sort of rule, some sort of principle by which you measure others. When people live up to the standard that you have, then they have good standing with you or the community. If people don't live up to your standards or the community standards, then they have no standing and one would judge them worthy of being canceled. Everybody follows some sort of law whether the moralist, whether the criminal, whether a secularist. Regardless, Jesus addresses here, again, those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. For these listeners, they were religious Jews. They were religious Jews. The more you followed the Old Testament law, the more standing with God you had, at least for the self-righteous Jews. Maybe you have come to church today with that same type of thinking. Or maybe you've just simply grown up in church with that thinking. Maybe you feel out of standing with God, the Creator, and you even right now want to get in some sort of good standing with God. And you think, the more I go to church, especially around Christmas, somehow you accomplish that. Or maybe you're brand new to Christianity, right? And maybe you have come to church with your friend in order really to get them off your back. And so that they would stop asking you to come to church, and finally you've arrived, and you think, man, these Christians just want to feel some sort of moral confidence. That's why they're coming to church, and at least, at the very least, you're willing to explore, which I'm glad that you're willing to explore and that you're here. Well, no matter who you are or what kind of background you come from, I hope that this passage today helps you gain clarification. I hope Jesus' I hope Jesus's parable helps clarify for you how one gets in good with God and all that is required to do so. Look at verse 10. Here's the story. Again, he's speaking to the self-righteous, those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. He says in verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. This is a really odd couple here. In fact, they're not a couple at all, as one of them would be absolutely despised by the other. We have the guy that the Jews, the the, the self-righteous, would look up to, that he is a Pharisee. Pharisees were religious leaders, teachers of the community, teaching the Old Testament law. They followed the Old Testament law, and they even followed additional laws that were passed on to them by their forefathers. These were the guys that you, frankly, would have felt safe around. These would be the guys that you would hand your home keys to. And to say, would you please look after my home and, in fact, my kids, because we're going on vacation. Because we all know that they're going to be the ones who follow the law. They're not going to steal your stuff. They're going to take care of your children. They were, in the ears of Jesus' hearers, the good guys. The other guy, well, he was the bad guy, and everybody would have known it. The tax collectors were known for stealing. They were known for extortion. They were known for their greed. I mean, imagine if you had a job and your boss said, or no, let's do this. Imagine if some immoral person, which frankly, a lot of us, all of us are, according to God's standard, but let's say an immoral person had a boss that said, hey, the more money you bring in, I'm going to give you 10%. The immoral person would be tempted to increase taxes in order to fill their own pockets, and that's exactly what the tax collectors did. You can imagine that the greed would rise, and so they were given into extortion, stealing, ripping off others in order to fill their own pockets. For the Jews, the tax collectors were categorized with sinners. It was sinners and tax collectors. It was tax collectors and prostitutes. And you even see this unfold in our passage today, how sinners and tax collectors were kind of all seen as one by the self-righteous, by the moral. So we already know, looking at these two guys going up to the temple to pray, we already know that there's going to be some sort of tension and some sort of vindication. Look there verse 10 again, these two men go up to the temple to pray The temple was on uh, a little mount, it was on a hill And most likely they're going up to a public service, that is a corporate service You could go to the temple anytime to pray by yourself But most likely here, they're going up to a corporate prayer service These services took place two times a day, 9am, 3pm So here go these two guys, this odd couple, up to the temple to pray Jesus continues, verse 11 The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. At first glance, at first hearing, this prayer actually doesn't sound too bad. I mean, he starts off thanking God. That's pretty good. It's a prayer of thanks, perhaps. Right? And maybe he could be thanking God for God's restraining grace, that God has, by His grace, kept him from being as bad as He could be, which God does for all of us. And then He goes on to thank God for keeping him out of various situations, right? Maybe. It could, have, it could sound good, but friends, that's not what's going on here, right? Remember verse 9. He's speaking to the self-righteous, to those who trusted in themselves, and the Pharisee, is their head, their representative, right? He's using the Pharisee to draw them in as they identify with him. So with that in mind, look back at his prayer. Part of what makes this prayer so strange is that even though he goes up to the temple to meet with God, to worship God, the sovereign almighty of the universe, he seems to talk a whole lot about himself. So one commentator said, this is basically a self-eulogy. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all I get. That's weird, frankly. This guy is, as the young folks say, Extra. Enough about me. Let's talk about me, he says. I mean, did you notice all the eyes? I thank you. I am not like them. I fast. I give a part of all I get. You've got to wonder, does this guy go up to the temple of God to give God glory? Or to give himself the glory? There are other prayers in the Bible where people certainly thank God, but they are not like this one. Here's, listen to Psalm 9-1. This is just one example. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. What's this guy talking about? He's talking about his own deeds he's extolling his own deeds he prays not about what god has done and will do all according to his sovereign purposes by his mercy and grace but instead he prays about everything that he has done he thanks god that he doesn't do bad things and is not like these bad people robbers evildoers adulterers or even like this tax collector instead of doing the bad things he the th- verse 12 he does the good things He does extra good things. In fact, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. You know, fasting in the law of Moses was required once a year on the day of atonement. This guy does it twice a week. He goes above and beyond. And then giving a financial tithe or an offering, he says he gives tithes of everything I get. The tithe was a 10% offering to the Lord. So say, for example, I am a farmer and I give produce to a Pharisee as a gift. I would have tithed 10% of the produce to God. But the Pharisee receives the gift, and in order to be extra, he, pays, he gives the tithe on even the gift. He's going over and above. Even though it wasn't required. And it's it's on account of what he does that he derives confidence before God, along with feeling superior over others. Sadly, though, while he begins his prayer addressing God, God seems to have been eclipsed, really, with all that he has done. He is full of himself and his works. Now, you may, be, you may be visiting and wondering, okay, so what's wrong with this guy being confident in his works? I mean, didn't God give his law so that it would be done? To that we say, absolutely, God did in fact give his law that it would be done. But the law was never given, never a means to earn standing before God or to get in good with God. It was not to be used certainly to gain superiority over others either. God gave the law to Moses and the people to reveal himself in his goodness and his holiness and to help his people know how to live in a way that would glorify him to the ends of the earth. But according to the Bible, the whole situation where the Pharisee goes to the temple of the sovereign God while taking confidence in what he has done is filled with actually tragic irony. No one with a right heart after God goes to the temple of the sovereign Almighty God to worship Him, to meet with Him, trusting in themselves because of their own works. According to the Bible, it was the people's works that got them into trouble to begin with. What is it that got us as humanity in trouble with God to begin with? It was, in fact, our works. God created Adam and Eve in the garden, and it was Adam and Eve's rebellious works that earned for themselves just judgment. I mean, can you imagine that, right? Why trust in man's works or have derive any sense of confidence before God or any sense of superiority over others when man's work is the problem in the first place? Man's heart and man's work, man's actions, are the problem in the first place. God had created Adam and Eve originally to be in fellowship with him where there was no sin where there was absolute love but they rebelled striving after autonomy they rejected god over them and opted rather to be their own gods for themselves and that friends is the very definition of sin toppling over the creator so that we would determine for ourselves what we think is good And so part of God's judgment was that they would be expelled from the garden, as, of course, the righteous just is who he is that is righteous and cannot dwell with the unrighteous. But, friends, being the loving and merciful king that he is, he doesn't abandon his people, even though they rebelled against him. He actually pursues his people, and so he draws near to his people and promised that one day he would bring them into perfect fellowship again. We see this pursuit in Genesis. We also see it in Exodus where he leads his people out of Egypt through the desert into the land of promise. And in the desert, God dwells with them. He reveals himself as they're wandering in the tabernacle before that the tent so you have the tent you have the tabernacle and then eventually the temple in the promised land and this friends is all evidence that god almighty who is all righteous loves and pursues even those who rebel against him. his wayward people god pursues by his own initiative all because he loves them and he wants to dwell with them he chose to be with his people by his grace and mercy And so pursuing them and meeting with the sinful people was by his decision, on his initiative. It was according to his design, and it was on his terms as he is the sovereign. All of this by the grace and mercy of God. So for the Pharisee to sort of strut up to the temple to meet with God, the sovereign, with his resume in hand, trusting in his own righteousness for good standing is frankly crazy. That only works if you, perhaps, perhaps it only works if you measure yourself against other people, which this guy, of course, is doing. He's too busy comparing himself to others that he's forgotten that he stands before the holy God, his maker. Friends, you see that this is our greatest problem, that we have sinned against a holy God, and no amount of good things we do gets us good, gets us in good with God and his infinite holiness. The wonderful thing, though, is that God himself has provided a way. A way to know him and to have fellowship with him, your creator. And of all the people in this story, it's the Pharisee who should have known it, but doesn't. It's the sinner, actually, that gets it. Look there, verse 13. Verse 13 says, "...but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven." But beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Notice his approach to God. It's so different from the Pharisees, right? He stood far off. Maybe it's referring to the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles were allowed to come up to the temple, but they were only allowed to go to a certain point. For the Jews, they were allowed to go further. Maybe he's in the court of the Gentiles here. He stood far off and would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. Not lifting up his eyes to heaven conveys, like, you know, a sense of personal unworthiness, perhaps shame from sin. And then in repentance and grief, he beats his chest, almost as if he's mourning, like when you go to a funeral and you clutch your chest because you feel something so deeply. It seems like he feels repentance, conviction that he has sinned against God. And whereas the Pharisee had eyes for himself and his deed, who is it that fills the tax collector's eyes? It is God himself. He prays to God in all of the right ways. He prays with God as the true subject, not seemingly naming God in lip service to then move on to extolling his own deeds or in comparison to others. He prays with God as a true subject And he prays that God would work and that God would act upon him. He puts it in the passive, right? God, act on me. God, be merciful to me. There is no self-righteousness here in this prayer. There is no confidence before the holy God because of who he is. There is only desperation and neediness as he prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Another way to translate this is, God, be propitious towards me. Another way is, God, in mercy, cover my sins with a sacrifice of atonement. Satisfy your judgment and wrath that is my due. It's a prayer from the heart. It's a prayer that reveals that this guy knows that God is God, that he is a sinner in absolute need of forgiveness before the holy God. The Pharisee, he wants to compare himself to others. The tax collector knows that ultimately he stands before God. But you know, the Pharisee had confidence, right? So does the tax collector. But it's not a confidence in his own works. It's a confidence in God. And in the fact that just as God is holy, so he is also merciful and loving, Confident in God's promise to freely forgive all who call upon his name. I think that's why Jesus has the tax collector go to the temple to begin with. Though we cannot reach God in our works, he goes there knowing that God has already come down to make his presence known, to reach out in pursuit of his people who have gone wayward. God has reached out and drawn near to sinners. There's reason for confidence, friends. Contrast that with the Pharisees' prayer. There is no pleading with God. Why would there be, frankly? Those who see no need for help do not ask for help. And so if you, trust for your, if you trust in your own righteousness, why in the world would you bother with the righteousness of God? But the tax collector saw his need for forgiveness. And he knows that God forgives those who call upon him. And so he cries out, God, be merciful. God, be propitious towards me, a sinner. I imagine that God is pleased we know friends god is pleased with prayers like this i imagine like a perfect father he is he is pleased when his child finally and freely gives him his heart in acknowledgement of who god is at the end of the parable things are topsy-turvy at least for the in the ears of the self-righteous The one that the self-righteous looked down on in contempt, turns out to be the one that God looked upon in favor and mercy. Look at verse 14. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. He went home justified. That is, he went home in the right with God even though he was a sinner, God had justified him. That is, God had declared him righteous in his sight, all by his grace and mercy. And in that moment, he had a new relationship with God, his maker. That's what Jesus is communicating to the self-righteous. This is what our holy and loving God does. Okay, so that's the parable. Given salvation is a free gift of God to those who humbly call on his name. Let's draw a few application points. First, this story encourages us, Jesus encouraged us to let go of any att- attempt at self-righteousness. To let it go. In fact, that's actually too soft. It should be like run away from, abandon, ditch, Why is it? Because it's impossible to fulfill the standards of a holy God. It is absolutely impossible. I mean, how small must God be to actually think that our efforts could get us back in favor with God? How does one please an infinitely holy and righteous God who is absolutely just? And to sin against Him once would be sinning against an eternally holy God. Even though temporarily we would just sin in a little blink of an eye of an immoral thought or an immoral deed. It's impossible to fulfill the standards of a holy God. So if you've come thinking that Christianity is all about trying to be good for the sake of goodness or somehow so that you could get in good with God if we just obey a certain amount of laws, or if we just use God's law in order to be righteous over others. We're using, friends, the wrong measure, the wrong standard. we got to use God as our standard, not ourselves. we got to use God as our standard. The Bible says in Romans 3 that there is no one righteous, no, not one. Again, he uh, Paul, who wrote Romans, and myself, and the pastors here who preach about sin, you know, we're not down on human beings, right? I think humans can do some really cool things. And we can appreciate humans for doing really awesome things. I can appreciate non-Christians for helping the elderly cross the street as they're bringing their groceries to their car. Like, those are good things, but those are nothing if we bring them to a holy God, That's what he means when he says that there is no one righteous, no, not one. It's Because the standard is God. It's not ourselves. Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, says that even our best deeds are basically like these tainted, dirty, polluted deeds, filthy rags, he says, in comparison to God and his righteousness. So if you are exploring and you feel the temptation, maybe, maybe you've come to church, right? And you felt the temptation to be all buttoned up, metaphorically speaking. I am buttoned up. Uh, and you feel the need to somehow be presentable to other people in order to measure up to evergreen standards. Friends, resist that temptation, We learn here that we should ditch this idea of relying on our own works and self-righteousness because we are not the ultimate standard, but God is. At best, if we come to church thinking that we are our own standard, at best we make each other our own idols. You wield the community law, Evergreen's community law against me, and then when I break it, I'm out of community with you it better be God's law that we hold out to us. Because if not, then we replace God's law with our law. And we'd better obey the community law, lest we are shunned. We're called here to ditch self-righteousness. And friends, you may even detect that that might be going on here in Evergreen, but just know, like, right, we're all sort of recovering self-righteous sinners. Praise God for God saving us, and he's working on us all. Yeah, we, sh- we had uh, a certain idea, a certain rule, whether you be like Chris in the beginning, who was memorizing Scripture as a teen, or you be like James, who started his criminal career on 13, at 13. We might all have these ideas of what righteousness looks like. Praise the Lord. God saves us and begins working on these things in his timing. You know, uh, Christians are also in temptation of going back to self-righteousness. One author put it this way. He says that we are tempted to build these ladders to nowhere. And it's by these ladders to nowhere and the status that we get on these ladders that gives us such confidence in the Christian community. And these ladders to nowhere could be like, I serve three times a week in the music ministry. And I do this for the church and I do that for the church and I give it to the church. And we do all these things for decades and decades. And it just so happens that the ladder to nowhere, you can imagine, we'll just use the pastors as an example. You can imagine, right, you're walking along the lawn right out here and you see Rocky's ladder to nowhere. And his ladder to nowhere, I don't know, it just so happens to be financial giving. Jeremy's ladder to nowhere just so happens to be service. And Victor's just so happens to be something else or the amount of people that they evangelize. And you're just a passive observer. You're thinking, what in the world is going on here? and you think i give to the church and i'm up on the ladder and i look down upon others and you haven't climbed up as high as I, as high as i have and the one who serves the one who gives and on and on and on it's just this comparison it's this whole merry go round that at the end of the day ends up nowhere before god this passage reminds us we got to shun that we got to abandon that and just go straight to christ to take confidence in jesus christ the lord and savior who is our righteousness this brings us to the second application point take confidence in christ jesus the savior whether christian visiting as a non-christian we cannot fulfill his standards praise god that is why god came down two men go up to pray one of them was self-righteous he's going up to meet God with his resume in hand. That cannot happen. It is impossible to meet God's standard. That's why Jesus came down. He came, the eternal Son of God, to bridge the gap that he alone could bridge. Thus, he is our Savior. Thus, he is our Deliverer and our Redeemer. He's the only one who earns those titles. He's the only one who deserves these titles. It's not that we add a little bit and we meet him halfway because we're so righteous, and then he brings the other half. It is that he alone is righteous, and he does it for us. That's what's so amazing about the tax collector. He goes straight to God because he knows that God has come down to meet us in his grace and mercy. It says, God, have mercy upon me. Be propitious towards me, a sinner. You know, I said that the temple was where God revealed himself in grace in pursuit of his people. You know, the temple by God's plan, though it was important, it was just temporary, just temporary. We said that the whole entire law of the Old Testament was just temporary, actually. It was, as Hebrews says, a shadow of the reality. Shadows aren't the reality. Shadows may be important, but the reality is this other thing, and the thing is Christ. The temple was a pointer of how God would one day dwell with His people in His eternal Son, Jesus Christ. God pursues us. God dwells with us, making His presence known, as John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know what that dwelt among us could be translated? It literally could be translated tabernacled, took up residence with. He, that is, God, the eternal son, tabernacled amongst us. That's God come down as he alone provides us righteousness that we need to stand before God. Christ fulfilled the law perfectly so we wouldn't have to because we couldn't in the first place. He dies on the cross to pay for our sin. He alone is the sacrifice of atonement that bears the wrath that we deserve. And he does this all for the joy that was set before him. This leads to a call. Number three, application point, humbly cry out to God for salvation. In the face of God exercising his sovereign power to win salvation for his people, what else is there to do but humbly cry out to God for mercy? Banking on the fact that God is who he says he is and that he will do everything he has promised. The Bible says that God stands with his arms wide open calling rebels to himself. And the time is now to repent of your sins and believe. And he promises you will be saved. We need to do what the tax collector is doing. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Given God sent Jesus to be the sacrifice of atonement, or in the words of 1 John 2, 2, he sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins, that is the sacrifice of atonement for sins that takes away God's wrath, that satisfies God's wrath. Given that's who Jesus is, Christian, let us then honor Christ as that. If you're visiting with us, honor Christ as that. And glory in Christ. By humbly calling out to God, God, be merciful to me. Be propitious towards me, a sinner. And look what happens to those who humbly call out to him. Verse 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We're not talking about being superior over others in pride. But we're talking about God giving you an exalted standing before him. Though you have sinned against him, he declares you righteous in Christ. That's what justification is. Though we are sinners, God still declares us righteous in his sight. We become citizens, full-fledged passport-carrying citizens of his kingdom, full-fledged members of his family as he adopts us into his family where he is father and we know him and his love And we then learn to live as he created us to live. And so God calls us to repent of our sins. And he says, you will be saved. Why delay is the question. By God's grace, he holds out salvation as a free gift to those who humbly call on his name. And to go back to the guys that I began with, Chris and James, they both had a sense that they needed a righteousness The way they sought after it was wrong, misguided, but their sense that they needed it was good. Friends, the only righteousness that will secure you before God is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Trust in him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, God, we give you praise as our God of mercy and compassion. And we thank you, God, that in your mercy and compassion you draw near to those who are in desperate need. We recognize that you alone can fulfill this need. You alone can meet this need. And so we call upon you God, we pray that we would go back to the cross, back to the gospel over and over and over again to draw from your fountain of mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would certainly free us from any temptation towards self-righteousness, thinking perhaps that we can earn standing with you. Also thinking perhaps that the most important standing we need is perhaps to be to be in right standing with this community or to meet the standard of ourselves. Lord, we pray that just as you welcome sinners, that we, God, would come to church and this church body recognizing that you save sinners. And so we would be so free, free to confess our sins, free to be vulnerable, free to plead the mercies of Christ in confession and repentance, asking for forgiveness. And Lord, we pray that your spirit, the spirit of Christ, would help us love you more, see you more clearly, that we might walk after you, that we would trust in you, abandoning self-righteousness and trusting that you justify sinners. And so we would delight in your righteousness and even your work in our lives to sanctify us. Lord, we pray that we as a community would be a humble people. Humble in light of all that you have done for us in the gospel. In your name we pray, amen.